All right, so today's reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19, through to chapter 12, verse 24. So 11, uh, 11, 19 through to chapter 12, verse 24 of Acts. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was going was was doing was really happening he thought he was seeing a vision they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city it opened for them by itself and they went through it when they had walked the length of one street suddenly the angel left him then peter came to himself and said now i know without a doubt the lord has sent his angel and rescued me from herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, 
also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the, at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came up to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is out the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When he, she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had, happened, what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Bastius, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. <coughs> on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Amen. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC, if I haven't met you before. Um, you'll find an outline for today's sermon on the welcome card, if that's the sort of thing that you're into. Uh, kids, hopefully you've all got a copy of the sermon sheet, the picture with a, a map and some questions on it. I'm going to let you know at different points in the sermon when to tune in so you can get some answers for that sheet. And then you can show mum and dad and you can have a chat about it afterwards. Uh, as we come to think about this passage, lots of exciting things happening. Uh, let's pray that God would be with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories about the exciting days of the early church. Please help us to consider what it means for us to be part of this same church, to be following the same Jesus, and may we be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. Amen. So let's begin today by thinking about denominational statistics and divine sovereignty. Yeah, some people are excited about that, but most of you aren't which I guess that's understandable. I think it's an interesting topic. Our church, uh, we belong to the denomination called the Presbyterian Church of Australia. And each year, the Victorian churches are asked to provide stats on attendance, baptisms, Bible study groups, membership, how many deacons we have, those sorts of things. And last year, we actually did some analysis across the state, looking at those stats to think about how healthy our churches are. Now, this can make some people like me pretty excited, but it can make other people pretty nervous or wary. Can you really put a measure on the work of the Spirit? Can you really make a church healthy by setting quotas or targets? If a church is small, is that automatically the fault of the minister? 
And if a church is large, is that automatically a sign that it's a healthy church? This can lead to some big questions, and I suspect it might lead most of us being a bit shy about statistics. After all, isn't God the one who's ultimately in control? Doesn't the Bible teach divine sovereignty? God is divine and He is sovereign, He rules over all. Well, that's true. But there is a balance. God oversees the world and the church, but He works through the effort of people. Sometimes He works against our efforts or despite our efforts, but mostly He uses what we do to bring growth to His church. And we see that clearly in the passage we're going to study today in the book of Acts. It's chapter 11, verse 19, through to chapter 12, verse 24. It speaks of the grace of God being powerfully at work, of the Holy Spirit speaking through people, of angels being set, sent to set Jesus' people free and to strike down his enemies. And all of these wondrous events take place by the hand of the Lord Jesus. The point of the book of Acts is to show us that Jesus has risen from the grave and is alive today. He's reigning from heaven. And we see in chapter after chapter that Jesus is still working through his spirit. He watches over the church. But more than that, he grows and he protects the church. So everything that happens in our passage today is by the will of Jesus, yet he also makes use of people's efforts. So this is where statistics and sovereignty come together. And I hope that by the end of this sermon, you will see that we can measure our efforts as a church as a way of seeing, are we being faithful to our calling as Jesus' people? And this is our calling, which, as it turns out, is the big idea of our sermon. The Lord Jesus calls Christians to faithful obedience while he grows and protects the church by his own hand. Let me say that again. The Lord Jesus calls Christians to faithful obedience while he grows and protects the church by his own hand. We'll see this in our passage in three parts. Uh, the Lord grew the church in Antioch. The Lord protected the church in Jerusalem. And the Lord defeated the enemy of the church. So let's get stuck into it. In verses 19 to 30 of chapter 11, we see that the Lord grew the church in Antioch. And this all actually began after Stephen the deacon was killed in chapter 7. He was the first martyr dying for his faith, and a great persecution broke out against the believers, and they fled into the regions of Judea and Samaria. So kids, it's time to tune in. You can see there's a map here. Hopefully you can read that, that okay. And this will help you to answer one of the questions on your sermon sheet. So in verse 19, we read that even though Acts 7, Acts 8 says the people fled to Judea and Samaria, here in chapter 11, we see they fled even further than that. Uh, they went to the coastal region of Phoenicia, which was north of Galilee. They went to the island of Cyprus. They even went to the city of Antioch. And as they went, they shared with the Jews that they met. They shared the gospel, declaring the good news that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah who had died and risen again to redeem his people. However, something amazing happened in Antioch. 
verse 20 tells us that some of these Jewish believers began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So why is that so important? Would you remember what we looked at last week? In chapter 10, the Apostle Peter was commanded by Jesus to go and share the gospel with Cornelius and his family. And to Peter's astonishment, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, they accepted Jesus as Lord. They received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, he learns in that, that, um, in that incident that the good news is for all people, not just for Jews. Well, the Jewish Christians in Antioch have learned this lesson as well. In verse 21, we read that Jesus put his seal of approval on their endeavours in sharing the good news with the Greeks. We read this. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Do you see that? The hand of the Lord was growing the church. The hand of the Lord Jesus was at work. And this is an encouragement as we speak to others about Jesus ourselves. Because see, he's the one who will work in their hearts so that they'll believe and turn to him. It's not our hand that accomplishes this, but the hand of the Lord Jesus. In fact, perhaps you're here today and maybe you want to believe in Jesus, but you're not quite there yet. Maybe you're finding it a bit hard. Maybe you've got doubts, questions. Maybe you've been hurt by the church or by Christians. Maybe you're worried about what it would mean to become a Christian, what that would mean for your life, for your relationships. Well, the risen Lord Jesus, who was at work in Antioch, is still at work today. And his hand can be with you too. So why not simply pray that Jesus would help you to believe and turn to him? Because that's the sort of prayer that Jesus loves to answer. Well, back in Acts chapter 11, verse 22, we see that the news of these conversions reaches the church in Jerusalem. And so they send Barnabas to investigate. And when he arrives, we see that he does two things. He encourages and he strategizes. Have a look at verses 23 and 24. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, does anyone remember what Barnabas' name means? That's right, son of encouragement. Back in Acts 4.36, we're told that his real name was Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas because it means son of encouragement. He was known to be such an encouraging guy. It was almost as if encouragement herself had given birth to a man. And what does he do here in Antioch? Well, he encourages. Now, there's a man who lives up to his reputation. And his time there leads to even more people being brought to the Lord. But he doesn't just encourage, he also strategizes as well. Have a look at verses 25 and 26. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. 
the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So back in chapter 9, verse 30, Saul's life was threatened by some Greeks, so he fled to Tarsus, which was his birthplace. And it might surprise you to learn that Saul had probably been there for at least 10 years, keeping a low profile. Yet Barnabas remembers him and seeks him out. And so these men spent a whole year teaching the church in Antioch, honing their preaching and their evangelism, their apologetics. It was all part of the preparation for their missionary journeys that came soon. That's when Saul would come to be known by his Greek name, Paul. So you can see here, Barnabas had a strategy and Jesus blessed it. As the church grows in numbers and wisdoms, wisdom, we see that they also grew in love for others. This is made clear in the next verses where we see that they support the Christians in Jerusalem. In verses 27 and 28, some prophets visit from Jerusalem. One of them is named Agabus and he predicts that there'll be a severe famine in the Roman world which will particularly impact on the region of Judea. And do you notice how it says that he predicted this through the Spirit. This is another sign of the Lord's hand at work. He's sending his Spirit, guiding people. While the disciples in Antioch are so moved, they decide they want to support their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and Judea, so each one of them sets aside what they can, and then they appoint Barnabas and Saul to go and deliver these gifts. Antioch is such an amazing church. And we learn an important lesson from their example. You'll see it in the outline. Jesus uses our preaching, encouraging and support of others to grow his church. This is part of how we balance, you know, relying on the hand of the Lord, but also being responsible for how we live our faith. It's the sovereignty and the statistics. So who do you preach the gospel to? Who do you encourage? Who do you support? You see, these are all ways that we partner with Jesus. But they're also ways of showing that we belong to him. So kids, it's time to listen up for another answer for your sermon sheet. It's on the back, so you'll have to flip it over. There's actually an amazing little sentence tucked away in these verses. You'll see it at the end of verse 26. Have a look. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Isn't that interesting that it took years for that name to come about? And did you know that the word Christian actually means Christ one? It means to belong to Jesus Christ, to be his. Now, we don't know if this was an insult used by outsiders, kind of look at you Christ ones, you love Christ so much. Or maybe it was a label that the insiders, the believers, came up with themselves. We don't really know, but either way, it's very fitting, isn't it? And it's not surprising that this has become, to this day, the main way that the followers of Jesus describe themselves. We are Christians because we belong to Jesus Christ. And the label stuck in Antioch because the believers were visibly known to belong to Christ. Would that be true of you? Would your friends, your neighbours, 
classmates, workmates know that you belong to Christ? So it can't just be because you're a good person or you're known for being kind because, well, anyone can be kind, atheists, Muslims, Buddhists. It can't just be because you're a champion of the cause of the poor and the marginalised. After all, the majority of people in Darabin do that. It can't just be because you wear a cross around your neck. Because there are plenty of people who take on the outward forms of Christianity but don't truly believe. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people knew that you were a Christian because they can see that you belong to Christ? They hear you speak about Jesus. They know that you serve Jesus and his church. They know your heart belongs to Jesus because you say it and you show it in how you live. You are a public Christian. When I die and people speak at my funeral, the one thing I want them to all agree on is that I was a Christ one. Would you want that to be true of you too? So please do consider how you are faithfully preaching, encouraging and supporting others like the Christians in Antioch. And may you see the Lord's hand at work. Well, having considered what was going on up north in the city of Antioch, uh, we now go down south to Jerusalem. And this next section, we'll see how the Lord's hand was at work in a different way. We see that the Lord protected the church in Jerusalem. This chapter starts with a chilling event. Can you see it? The Apostle James is executed. Have a look at verses 1 to 3. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. So this is a bit of a flashback to what was happening in Jerusalem before Barnabas and Saul arrived with their gifts of money. And the Herod mentioned here is actually the third Herod in the Bible. Uh, There's Herod the Great who tried to kill baby Jesus. Uh, Then there's Herod also known as Antipas who actually was involved in killing Jesus. And then there's this Herod also known as Agrippa who killed James, the brother of John. They're a fairly bloodthirsty family. And this is pretty sobering. You see, James was the first apostle to be martyred. And Luke's description is almost jarring in its brevity. We don't hear about the church's reaction. We don't know if they buried him or not. We, We don't know how his brother John felt. And it also seems so senseless. I mean, you might recall that James was one of the inner three of Jesus' 12 apostles. Peter, James and John were often taken aside for special teaching by Jesus. They got to be the sole witnesses to special events like the raising of Jairus' daughter or the transfiguration on the mountain. And so why would the risen Lord Jesus allow one of his friends, one of his disciples, one of his inner three to die? We'll hold that thought and we'll come back to it. We're going to look now at what happened next because that's Luke's focus in chapter 12 where he records how the apostle Peter is rescued. 
So Herod arrested Peter during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the week-long celebration that takes place after the Passover meal. And Herod, he doesn't want to execute Peter during the festival because he knew that would probably offend the Jews. So instead he locks the apostle up in prison and waits for the festival to end. Verse 5 shows us that while he's in there, the church in Jerusalem was earnestly praying to God for him. So let's pick up the story in verse 6. And again, kids, here's an answer for your sermon sheet. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Well, the angel then leads Peter out of prison. They just walk past the guards. And Peter's really confused about what's going on. He even thinks it's a vision rather than a real event. However, once the angel leads him down the street and then the angel disappears, Peter comes to his senses. In verse 11, he says to himself, Well, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. You see that? He knows that the hand of the Lord has been at work. He rushes off to Mary's house, who is the mother of John, also called Mark. Just in case you're interested, this is the John Mark who later joined Barnabas and Saul on their missionary journey. He's probably also the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Now what happens next is a bit of a head-scratcher. So Peter knocks on the door, on the outer door, and a servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer it. And when she hears Peter's voice, rather than opening the door, she runs off to tell everyone that he's here. And that's not even the strange part. The rest of the people in the house, they don't believe her that Peter is there. But she keeps insisting, so eventually some of them say, oh, well, it must be his angel. Now, that's the weird bit. I mean, what are they talking about? What are they thinking? Some people suggest that the disciples assumed that Peter had been executed and this is his spirit kind of on, on his way to heaven and just saying goodbye. Other people uh, think that the disciples assumed that this was Peter's guardian angel on that guardian angels would take on the appearance and the voice of those people that they watched over. I don't know about you, but neither of those explanations sound particularly convincing to me. And whatever it, whatever it is that they believe, we're told that they're wrong because we know it's actually Peter. So we shouldn't draw any conclusions about kind of a theology of angels or spirits from this statement. My theory, for what it's worth, is that perhaps they thought this was an angel sent with a message about Peter, maybe from Peter or from God, saying what's going to happen, and they kind of ignored the part about the angel sounding like Peter. But in any case... They eventually open the door and they're astonished to see Peter free, standing there before them. But hold on, weren't they just praying to God that he would set Peter free? I mean, they were asking for this to happen and then when God answers their prayer, they're astonished. It's actually pretty funny, isn't it? But it's also not funny because we can be like this too. 
We earnestly pray for God's help, but then we refuse or ignore that help when it comes to us in an unexpected way. What we see here in this passage is that Jesus protects his church in Jerusalem. And there are a number of application points we could draw out, but I want to focus on this. Jesus will protect us in his way, in his timing. So we must pray in faith. You know, we could easily misread this story as being about the guaranteed power of prayer. And if you just get enough people together and pray for long enough, then God will answer all your prayers and you'll be looked after. But that can't be true, can it? Because how does this chapter start? The Apostle James is killed. I mean, surely the believers would have prayed for him too. So what is the lesson? Well, our job is to trust that Jesus has a plan and that he'll work it out in his timing and by his methods. We won't always understand what he does. We won't even like what he does sometimes. But our role is to faithfully pray. We are to pray for others that they be healed and helped, even if in the end they remain sick or stuck in life. We can't control the hand of the Lord, but he may choose to answer our prayers to show us that he's in control and that he loves us. And at other times, he won't answer our prayers so that we can remember that he is in control and he loves us. I mean, imagine what it felt like when James died. Imagine how the Christians in Jerusalem grappled with that. I mean, have you ever received news about a leader or pastor or author or Christian friend who died young, yet you felt they were doing great things for the Lord. You might wonder, why would Jesus allow that to happen? I mean, surely Jesus needs good, godly men and women. Well, there are no easy answers. But the Christians in Jerusalem would have understood how you feel. And what we can see is that when James died, it wasn't outside of Jesus' plan. So he didn't mean that Herod now had the upper hand. No, the hand of the Lord was still directing everything. Things were going according to his plan. And yet this is even true for ourselves when we might feel our opportunities or potential has been cut short. We might feel like we've got lots of things we want to do to serve Jesus, to serve the church, but we get sidelined or benched due to illness or we, maybe we stuff up or maybe other people's sin prevents us from serving. But there's no need to feel defeated because Jesus will still grow and protect his church. And there's still a role that you can play. You can play a role through faithful prayer. In fact, it's people like Herod who should be worried. They're the ones who should feel defeated, which leads us to our next point. The Lord defeated the enemy of the church. This point's going to be a lot quicker. After Peter escaped, Herod left Jerusalem and went to his palace in Caesarea on the coast. 
He was in the midst of a conflict with two Phoenician cities, and you can check it out in verse 20. He had been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Must admit, I love that name. Blastus sounds like some kind of Marvel, DC villain type guy. We see the, the hand of the Lord at work because Herod Agrippa is about to get judged. And this happens in the Lord's own timing. See, it seems that Herod grants the request of peace and then he makes a big speech. And then in verse 22, the people of Tyre and Sidon who are there, they shout out, this is the voice of a God, not a man. And Herod loves it, of course. But at that very moment, Jesus executes judgment. And look at verse 23. And kids, it's time to listen up for another answer for your sermon sheet. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. He's judged for his pride, for his rebellion against God, and no doubt for executing James. This took place well after James' death, which shows that Jesus will judge in his own time. In fact, it's actually unlikely that Herod died at that very moment. Uh, there are other historical records we have outside of the Bible. They suggest that he was struck down with pain on that day and then died several days later. But the key thing is that Luke supplies the ultimate cause by telling us it was an angel of the Lord who struck Herod at that moment. And that meant that his fate was sealed. So this is a sobering warning to all who would oppose God and his church. Jesus cannot be stopped. And if Jesus sends an angel to you, it will be bad news for you unless you believe and turn to him. So the lesson here for Christians is that Jesus will judge, so we must wait. We must faithfully persevere. The Jewish Christians originally arrived in Antioch because they were being persecuted. Yet this was God's very means for spreading the gospel. Yet they continued to face opposition in Antioch, in Jerusalem, in the whole world as they carried the message about Jesus. This story about James and Peter and the angels shows that Jesus will certainly judge those who oppose him, but it may take time. And so we need to persevere in faith. We should look with hope to the future. And we should pray for those who persecute us. After all, if Jesus can convert someone as zealously opposed to the church as Saul, then surely Jesus can convert anyone. And what was true in those days will be true for us too. Have a look at verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Still true today, isn't it? Thinking back to the start of this sermon and the idea of statistics and sovereignty, I hope you can see how this passage encourages us as Christians to strike a healthy balance. Here's our final point. The hand of the Lord is still at work today, 
So let's faithfully obey him by focusing on preaching, people and prayer. Statistics don't make a church healthy. Good statistics don't guarantee that we're being faithful to Jesus. However, they can help us reflect on how we are going. Are we focusing on the right things? Are we missing opportunities? Are we being faithful to our calling as Jesus' people? And more importantly, statistics can help us identify even more reasons to give thanks to Jesus for the ways in which he's been growing and protecting our church by his sovereign hand. More reasons for us to pray. We've considered how this passage applies to us as we've gone along, so I'm just going to sum up now. I'm going to sum up what it looks like to be faithfully obeying Jesus in three words. Preaching, people, prayer. That was the focus of the Christians in Antioch and Jerusalem. They were preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus. They were preaching the word of God. They were caring for people and investing in them. And they were praying for Jesus to grow them and to protect them. The hand of the Lord Jesus made use of these for his work in the world. And it was this focus that revealed to the world that these women and men were Christians, that they were Christ ones. May this be true of us too. Let's pray. Our loving Lord Jesus, we thank you for your work in our lives individually, but also as a church, your work across the world throughout time. May we uh, be prayerfully attuned to seeing your hand at work and to give thanks to you when we do see it, and to be prayerfully calling upon you to continue to work so that more people might believe and turn and find grace and love in you. Amen.